make it live in our hearts and minds. We know that the Bible is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but often we read it with such dull spirits. So maybe our prayer is today, wake us up so that we will be in tune with the living, powerful, life-transforming Word of God. Spirit of God, be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can't remember exactly where it is, and I think this situation has been repeated over and over again, but I remember driving by a building. Actually, it was a series of buildings that were half-built. And the story goes that there was some project manager, some developer, who had great visions in mind and decided to build this uh, uh, business park, this area, against all odds when people told him he shouldn't do it. But he boldly, boldly went ahead. He didn't have all the money in hand, but he began, began the building, and it rose up, and it looked like it was going to be magnificent, and then all buildings stopped. Because he hadn't counted the costs accurately, and didn't have enough money to finish the project. And today you can still go by that building, and it's called Stephen's Folly. Just to let everyone know that this builder could not do what he said he was going to do, and instead of a testament to his genius, it is a testament to his foolishness. Well, I think when we read Mark chapter 8, we come across what I like to call the Apostle Peter's folly. And it remains as a testament, century after century, to the man who didn't quite understand and didn't quite count the cost. Open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8. And as you're opening there, let me remind you what we said two weeks ago, that we've now come to the pinnacle, the center, the apex of the gospel according to Mark. The first eight chapters focused on the question, who is Christ? And in many ways, Jesus said things, did things, wonderful teaching with authority, amazing miracles that astounded the populace, all to answer the question, who is he? Who is he really? And now we come to that confession. Now we come to that revelation of the true identity of Jesus Christ in Peter's confession. And then once Peter makes this confession, the rest of the Gospel of Mark is kind of downhill, all toward the city of Jerusalem. And it's all describing the mission of Christ. What is his calling? Why is he here? What is he seeking to accomplish? Now that we know he is the Christ, what will the Christ do? And of course, you and I know he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to die, and in dying, to redeem. Now, as we open Mark's gospel, just by way of review, verse 27 tells us that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. If you're looking at a map of Israel, that's in the very northern section, just at the foothills of Mount Hermon. And on the way, Jesus posed this question, who do people say that I am? And the response was varied. Some say John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the dead. I beheaded John, and now he's alive, 
and he's come back to haunt me. Others say, no, he's Elijah the prophet because it was predicted that before Messiah would come, Elijah was come. Others said, no, he's, he's one of the other prophets. And we read in Matthew that some said he was Jeremiah because of the similarity of his weeping and his compassion for his people. But Jesus said in verse 29, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And the most important question is not what they say, it's what you say. What is your personal response? And Peter speaks up for the whole group, and I think they all said amen when Peter said, you're the Christ. Not a name, but a title. You're the Messiah. The one that we've been looking for, the anointed one of God. The one who's going to set up a kingdom that will never end. And when we read in Matthew's gospel what Peter said, the response is even more detailed. You are the Christ. What's the rest of it? The son of the living God. You're not just the one who is going to set up this earthly kingdom and rule and reign. You are God in the flesh. That's what he was saying. You're not just a prophet. You're the prophet. You're not just a voice from God. You are the living word of God. You're God in the flesh. That's Peter's faith. That's Peter's wonderful insight. Of course, we know from Matthew that this was given to him by revelation from God, but Peter understands, he comprehends, he gets it. Right on, Peter, spot on, way to go. A lot of people live through life and never understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus warned them then not to tell anyone about him, verse 30, which seems strange to us, but you have to remember the times. People didn't quite understand who Jesus was. He still wanted the freedom to move about and minister. And if they thought he was a king, if they thought his kingdom had come that very moment, they would try to force him to be a king, which is exactly what they would do, and his ministry would be curtailed. His ministry would be eliminated or at least limited. By the way, this is the last time Jesus said, don't tell anybody who I am. As he marches toward Jerusalem and the cross, he wants everyone to know. So verse 31 tells us, Jesus began to teach them, and he's talking just to his disciples at this point. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which was the favorite title Jesus owned and embraced for himself, emphasizing his humanity. The Son of the living God emphasizes his deity the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those three groups, elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, formed the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And after three days, he must die, or he must be killed, and after three days must rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I submit to you, here's Peter's folly. Whenever you try to correct God, you're playing the part of a fool. Because whatever God says is true, he can never be inconsistent with his holy character. 
And whatever he says that we don't comprehend, the problem is with us, not with him. Our limited understanding, our unwillingness to believe. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Now this morning, I want to emphasize a couple things that come out of the text, beginning with verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that he must suffer. Number one this morning, I want to emphasize his cross. And although he doesn't use the word cross, here's a prediction of the suffering, the unavoidable physical suffering that Jesus had to face. Notice he says in verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He was able to look into the future, and Jesus knew exactly why he came, and he knew exactly where he was heading. He knew exactly what was going to happen. The physical suffering of Jesus Christ was inevitable. It was necessary. He must suffer. Added to that is the inescapable ecclesiastical rejection. Jewish leaders will reject him. He will die. His suffering will ultimately end in death, but that's not the end. For what is also certain is that he must rise again. He was articulate. He was plain in what he said. There's no figure of speech. There's no metaphor. There's no speaking in shadows and riddles. He was very plain about what he said. Jesus must die. And the heart of the Christian message is the cross. The heart of the good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news that we are sinners and separated from God and we must be reconciled to him, but nothing other than the death of God could pay for our sin and nothing other than the death of God could reconcile us to him. And that's exactly what he does. The good news is that God comes to rescue us. Jesus doesn't come to condemn. He comes to save because we are condemned already. And the heart of the good news is the cross. But I want you to know, when Jesus gave this prediction, which was very clear, this was actually the first time. Oh, there had been some idea about the suffering of the Savior, and it was foretold in the Old Testament, and even hinted at at other times. But now Jesus tells them plainly, and if my counting is right, he's going to tell them three different times before he actually dies, and they still won't get it. How many times do you have to be told something before it sinks in? Can I ask your wife? <laughs> and she would say, repeatedly. <laughs> Advertisers say you have to hear something 14 times before you'll never forget it. And they hammer that into your mind until you say, I'm sick of that. Yeah, but that's what they want. Because once you're sick of it, it means you'll never forget it. Jesus is going to repeat several times over. But notice Peter's response. He began in verse 32 to rebuke Jesus. Now let me give Peter just a little bit of credit here. I'm not saying what he did was right, but I understand it a little bit. I mean, his whole teaching had been that the Messiah would come and through a bloody conflict put down all of God's enemies. 
And they knew who the enemies of God were. They, they were the Assyrians, and, and they were the Babylonians, and the Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans, especially the Romans, who now dominated the land. When Messiah comes, God will put down his enemies. Messianic fervor had reached a fever pitch at this particular time. In fact, many people came and said that they were the Messiah, but now all eyes focused on the carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus, because he was healing people, and there was no other way to explain it except this is the work of God. And his teaching had a note of authority and no other way to explain that except he's come from God. And so many had the hope that he was the Messiah, and I think that's why Judas Iscariot hitched his wagon to this leader called Jesus and became one of the 12 because he was going to have a, a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and Judas would have a place of power in that kingdom. All the disciples were thinking that way. And although you and I can quickly go back to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and talk about the suffering servant, the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, we know that well. Even though you and I can quote it, they didn't get it. In fact, some people thought Messiah must be two different people. There's one who will suffer and one who will reign. A suffering savior, a suffering sovereign, a king who would go to a cross. I can't believe it. By the way, Peter probably had a little self-interest in all of this because if his master is going to suffer, what's that going to do to him? I'm amazed during the political season when one camp is fighting against the other and they'll say things that are so unrealistic because they are just so committed to their horse winning the race. They won't listen to reason. They won't accept reality. They're just convinced that they're going to win and nothing else will they consider. That was Peter. Jesus, come over here for a second. I need to set you straight. You've got it all wrong. You're the Messiah, yes. But the Messiah doesn't suffer. He's a conqueror. He's a king. And Peter rebuked him. Maybe Peter thought, and we had in his mind Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read these words. Daniel 7 verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Same term. Coming in clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And this Son of Man was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all the nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Peter might have memorized those verses and said, that's the Messiah. So Jesus, let me quote some scripture to you and set you straight. Peter was an example of how the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't anticipate it. So our Lord gives Peter some correction. In fact, there's a double rebuke here. We're told in verse 32, Peter rebuked Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus rebuked Peter. 
Peter said, no, you've got it all wrong. Jesus said, no, you've got it all wrong. In fact, what Jesus actually said was, get behind me, Satan. How to win friends and influence people. By the way, this is the harshest statement Jesus ever made directed toward a genuine believer. Get behind me, Satan. The one who just a moment ago was speaking out of divine revelation. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Heaven has revealed this to you, Peter. One who was speaking out of divine revelation is now speaking out of satanic deception. In fact, what Jesus is saying is, this is this, you're, you're tempting me just like Satan tempted me when I was out in the desert. He said, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. The cross is not part of your kingdom. And Jesus said to Peter, you're acting just like the devil. Get behind me. Did you ever think that sometimes your well-meaning friends might be speaking to you in the voice of the devil? Did you ever think that someone who has nothing but your best interests in mind may say something to you that is clearly contrary to the plan of God? And whatever is contrary to the plan of God, in a sense, is demonic. At that moment, Jesus is refighting the temptation in the wilderness. And he says to Peter, get behind me. What you're saying is not of God. In fact, Jesus puts it this way. You don't have in mind, the last part of verse 33, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. What you have in mind are the concerns of men, earthly kingdom, position in the kingdom, Messiah only conquering. You can only see from a human perspective. And that is one of the biggest problems that evangelical Christians, I'm referring to South Church now, one of the biggest problems that you and I face, we live our lives from a worldview that is too human. And we do not see God over I tell you, if I were just to look at the human scene right now, at this point in the 21st century, I would be of all people most discouraged because things are getting worse, right? I mean, the battles all over the world with terrorism? Unbelievable. In our own country, mindless shootings of innocent people. You don't know where it's going to happen next. In fact, we're frightened. And in the political realm, don't get me started. I don't know what to say. And I've always known what to say. <laughs> it's not been right all the time, but I've had something to say. I don't know what to say. Except God help us. But this I know. God is on the throne. And I will not be discouraged. The king of king, kings reign. Too often we have in mind a human perspective and not a godly perspective. And we get into trouble theologically and we get into trouble practically when we do not see God above the problem. When we don't understand his purposes. So let's take the concern of God. Notice, Jesus talks about his cross. 
But then notice verse 34. He calls the crowd together now, not just the disciples, but a larger crowd that might have been in the periphery. He calls them along with his disciples, and he says to them now, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. Isn't it interesting and very remarkable that Jesus quickly goes from his cross to ours? That he links the two together? That they are inseparable? And whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross. Jesus says we have a cross and we are obligated to take it up. The obligation of the cross. <laughs> and here again is a message that modern day Christianity does not want. They didn't want it in the first century. We don't want it in the 21st century. That following Christ is a difficult thing. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross. Follow me. Same note of necessity that marked the cross of Christ. Marks the cross of his followers. Deny Lose, take up, embrace, follow, mimic. That's what a disciple is. In this obligation, Luke adds the word daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So it's something we must do and it's something we must do every day. If you want to be the disciple of Jesus, you've got to take up his cross. Oh, pastor, I do. I take up his cross every day. My cross is my husband. Living with that guy is horrible. I've got a cross to bear. And you and I interpret the cross in some very unique and interesting ways. But they're not biblical. Your cross is not a trial you face. Your cross is to die to yourself. That's what the cross of Christ was. The cross meant death. Here's the explanation of it. H.B. Sweet says, It means to put oneself into the position of a condemned criminal on his way to execution. Your cross is not denying yourself. Your cross is self-denial. Those are two different things. Denying yourself, people do that for Lent. They deny themselves a few luxuries, and as soon as it's over, man, then they, they indulge. That's not what we're talking about at all. Self-denial is dying to yourself. That's the problem with Christianity today. Too many Christians still are alive for self, concerned about human things, my own agenda, my own safety. If you saw a man in that day in Roman-occupied Palestine walking through the streets with a patibulum on his back, that's the cross piece in the cross 
You knew exactly what that man was doing. You didn't have to run up to him and say, hey, man, what in the world are you doing carrying that piece of wood on your back? Everyone knew. Because when you were condemned by Rome as a criminal and set to be crucified, you had to carry your cross through the streets. And that's what Jesus did. They knew exactly what that person was destined for. And Jesus took that imagery and said, this is what it is to follow me. Ouch. I like what John Stott has to say. We are always in danger of trivializing Christian discipleship as if it were no more than adding a veneer of piety over the paganness of our heart over an otherwise secular life. Prick the veneer, and the same old pagan lives underneath. Wow. No, becoming a Christian involves a change so radical that no imagery can do it justice except death and resurrection. For you and I to take up our cross every day means that we die to ourselves and our agenda and we live for Jesus alone. That's what discipleship is. Die to self. The cross is all about giving up yourself. If you try to save your life, you'll lose your life. That's how Jesus explains it. Verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life, loses his life. Whoever loses his life for me and the sake of the gospel will save it. For me and the sake of the gospel. Some people want to be Christians who in isolation love Christ and follow Christ but want nothing to do with other people. But when it says for me and the sake of the gospel, that involves others. It's your responsibility and mine to live the gospel before a lost and dying world and share the good news with them. Lose your life for Christ and the sake of others. There are certain things that are lost by being kept and certain things that grow when they die, like a seed in the ground, right? A father says to his little child, here's some money. I want to teach you how to use money. But this one child of his is an overcautious child, and they take the money, and they don't want to use it, and they don't want to invest it. They just want to protect it. And that's not what money is for. What good is it just to hoard it and not use it for good or use it for your needs or invest it so that it might grow and do even greater good? What would would happen to our society if every mother said, you know, giving birth is just a little too risky. I'm going to play it safe and not have any children. What would happen if every Christian said, I'm just going to live in isolation and not touch any other life. I want to play it safe. I want to protect myself. Discipleship is all about protecting me, right? It's all about me experiencing a comfortable, easy, wonderful life, right? No, King Jesus says it's following me, and if you're going to follow me, it's enough for the servant to be like his master. 
take up my cross. That's what living is all about. Remember during World War II when Churchill said to the people of Europe, in particular to Great Britain, they were in the midst of a conflict that at that point in time looked like they were going to lose? Talking 1939, maybe 1940. And he said, I have nothing to offer you but what? Blood, sweat, and what? Tears. Yeah, that's the conflict. If you, if you want to fight, this is what it's going to be. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, he doesn't sugarcoat the experience. In this world, you will have tribulation. Identify with me, they killed me. They're going to hate you too if you're like me. So discipleship then is going to be a rough road. It's not sugar-coated. Take up your cross every day. Die to yourself. Lose your own agenda, but find life in me. Because as John 12 says, when the seed dies in the ground, then it can produce wonderful fruit. There can be a wonderful harvest. Look at this evaluation. Verse 36 says, What good is it if someone would gain the whole world, which, by the way, you cannot do. (laughs) But what if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul? In the process, you had to lose your soul. What if you gained the whole world? Even if you did, it couldn't satisfy. Even if it satisfied, it wouldn't last because the world's passing away. Or what will you give in exchange for your soul? Verse 37. What's the exchange rate right now for a soul? I I go to Europe and and I see that the English dollar compared to the pound is now stronger than it was before. What's the exchange rate for a soul? What will you give for your soul? (laughs) I wouldn't give anything for my soul. A lot of you... A lot of us are surrendering far less than all the riches of the world. Would you give a million dollars? Would you take a million dollars for your soul in some kind of Faustian agreement with the devil? I don't think so. And yet many of us are giving up our soul for a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of time and a little bit of comfort. What? Will you give in exchange for your soul? There's a blank. Fill it in. And if you say nothing, then you need to take up your cross daily and follow him. If anyone is ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. By the way, we are living in an adulterous and sinful generation that knows no shame. I thought that was true a decade ago. It's even more true today. No shame. But Christians are often ashamed of Jesus and his words. The world doesn't like his word. But frankly, I better stand with Jesus. Compassionately, yes, but boldly. I'm not going to be ashamed of his word in this sinful an adulterous generation, if I want to be a disciple. 
Evaluate the worth of your soul. Some people are sacrificing soul for a little bit of money or profit. Bartering, swapping, exchanging that which never dies for that which lives but a moment. Exchanging eternity for the temporal. Honor for profit. Principle for popularity. But Jesus says that's not the way of discipleship. And if you are not ashamed of me, Jesus says, I won't be ashamed of you. And by the way, he has a lot to be ashamed about with regard to us, doesn't he? And yet, it's all forgiven by the blood of Christ. William Barclay tells the story of a, of a man who wanted to be a monk by the name of Telemachus. Telemachus decided that he would know God and devote his life to knowing God and doing nothing but seeking to know God and spending time in prayer and reading his word and in his presence, and so he became a monk and went to a monastery. Then he realized that this was selfish love. It was just all about him and not about anyone else. He realized that if he would really want to serve God, he's got to get out there and serve the people. Just like we read in Mark's gospel, it's for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So he decided to make a long journey to the city of Rome, and in that city, find a place to live and minister, let his life rub up against the lives of others. And when he got to Rome, he noticed at this point in time that Christianity had become the official religion. With the reign of Constantine, now Christianity was the official way to worship. And yet the arena and the Colosseum were still active. But they weren't killing Christians. They were killing those that they captured in other lands. As the Roman Empire expanded, they would capture people, they would bring the captives back to Rome to be slaves, and they would kill them in the Colosseum because they didn't want to kill Christians anymore. After all, that's the official religion. And all of this to amuse the allegedly Christian populace. Doesn't make any sense. Telemachus got into the arena and he was appalled at what he saw. And he leaped over the barrier and stood, behind, stood between two gladiators and said, stop this. And for a moment they did. And then the crowd yelled, let the games go on. Let the games go on. He stood between the gladiators and the crowd began to throw whatever they could and the commander of the game stood up and said, kill the man. And one gladiator with his sword sliced Telemachus in two. He was still wearing the robes of the monastery, and the crowd went silent. For it seemed to hit them in mass at one moment that they now had killed a holy man, and their bloodlust was so great that they would kill anyone. And the game stopped. And they never started again. 
Edward Gibbon, the famous historian who wrote the fall, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, said this, in dying, Telemachus killed the games. In dying, his death was more useful than his life. And I tell you, dear Christian friend, if you want your life and if I want my life to be useful for King Jesus, we must die to self and live for Christ. Paul put it this way, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in this fleshly body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me so much. He gave himself for me. It's his cross and ours. In these two crosses, we have the essence of Christianity. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to understand.